jumper on the way. Good! Tyus Battle nails the three. Dungey leaps and into the end zone for Dungey. A touchdown. If that's not on every highlight show tonight, then I, I don't know who's watching. Powered for Soaring through the air. High-flying Slovakian. Screen pass here. He'll get one. And he stays alive, and he's got room to the 10. One man to beat. He'll do it. Touchdown, Syracuse. And for Syracuse, party time. The upset pulled by the Orange. They defeat Clemson 27 to 24. The penetration. Step back. Oh, a pressure bucket for Tyus Battle. This is Orange Nation with Stephen Fonte and Seth Goldberg. Powered by Drivers Village and Hummel's Office Plus. Welcome in, welcome aboard. Um, Tuesday edition of Orange Nation here on ESPN Radio. A game day edition of Orange Nation once again here on ESPN Radio Syracuse. 315-437-7644 is the telephone number. 288-0644 is the text line. And on Twitter, at SethGoldberg17 and at ESPN Syracuse. we got a busy show for you today. Of course, SUUNC is tonight. We'll get to that in a couple of minutes. Uh, a crazy idea that I saw coming out of the college athletics world, the college football world specifically, but possibly crazy, just crazy enough that it'll work. So that'll come up uh, in a little bit as well. We'll do a sound check today. We've got Jonathan Alexander from the News and Observer down in Raleigh, North Carolina. He's their UNC Tar Heels beat writer. So we'll talk to him coming up at 1 o'clock this afternoon on the show. But I do want to start with SU and North Carolina. And this is a series that has been lopsided. This is a series that has been a struggle for the Orange. And, and something that I... I probably knew, but didn't quite realize until it was put down on paper and thrown in front of me. But Syracuse has won one game against North Carolina as a member of the ACC. Just one. And that was the very first time that these two teams met as conference foes. Way back in January of 2014, Tyler Ennis, C.J. Fair, Jeremy Grant, that team on their way to 25-0. Think about how long ago that feels. That feels like it was a while ago. And maybe I didn't quite remember that game because I, I believe I somehow found some bar in London that was playing the game, which was mind-blowing to us Americans studying abroad from SU. Mind-blowing that, that a, a bar in London would care enough to have American college basketball on. But they did. They had the Syracuse-UNC game on, and we watched, and we were the you know the loud Americans who were cheering at the end of the bar for who knows what. But think about that. Five years ago, Syracuse beat North Carolina, and they have not beaten them since. That's a long time. And I know that UNC is... Typically supremely talented. I know that UNC has gone to Final Fours, has won national championships in that time. But I am surprised, in a way, how that happened. Because Duke is supremely talented. 
And Syracuse has managed to play good games against Duke. Duke has gone to Final Fours. Duke has won national titles. And Syracuse has managed to play Duke close. And you say, well, UNC has this legendary coach, has Roy Williams. Duke has this legendary coach. They've got Coach K. All the more accomplished, more Final Fours, more championships, more wins. On down the list than Roy. And so it's one of those things that I don't quite understand. I don't quite know why Syracuse has struggled so much with UNC over the years, but they have. And as you look back at some of the past teams, they've had guys who have been perfect, perfect pieces to sit in the middle of that zone and cause problems. And the one that's coming to mind, and maybe it's just because he's the most recent, is Theo Pinson. Theo Pinson caused a lot of problems for Syracuse when they put him in the high post, when they put him at the top of the free throw line, when they you know made him the facilitator, the scorer, the rebounder, the, the little bit of everything. He created a lot of problems. I'm pretty sure, and I could be wrong here. I could be exaggerating. I think the tape against Syracuse might have gotten him the contract that he was on with the Nets this year, which I believe was a two-way deal. I mean, the tape against Syracuse looked so good that that might have gotten him a little extra bump as far as the NBA went. And so I'm not totally sure who's going to take that role this year. I'm not totally sure how UNC is going to attack it. But I do know that UNC is going to attack the zone that way. Because we've seen them do it. We've seen them do it for the last five years. We've seen that UNC has a very good plan of attack with this Syracuse zone. That UNC and Roy Williams know exactly what they want to do, and they're in all likelihood going to be able to do it. Which is why I don't really like this matchup for Syracuse. I think this orange team is good. I think this orange team, and I've said this throughout the year, I think this orange team is better than they have shown the large part of this year. I think they're legitimately a good team. Going to get a bye in the ACC tournament. Going to go to the NCAA tournament. They're legitimately good. That being said, there's a gap between between being good and being a top five team in the country. And we saw that gap on Saturday night. We saw that there is a difference. We saw that if you make a mistake here or a mistake there, the teams that are in the top five, the top seven in the country, are going to make you pay for it. Duke did on Saturday. Duke outscored Syracuse by 15 points in the second half. That doesn't happen by accident. Duke outscored Syracuse by 15 points in the second half. That's remarkable. And I look at tonight and I say, all right, who's stopping Luke May? Who's bodying up Luke May? When he gets positioned in the post against the zone? When he pops out and has the ability to take a three? He's got the ability to play make and to be a little bit of a passer. Maybe he's the guy who wreaks havoc tonight at the top of that zone in that high post. To me, that seems to be the most likely target if you're Syracuse. Lock in on Luke May. Now, that sounds simple. But Luke May is the all-ACC player, candidate for ACC player of the year. I say candidate loosely because are there any candidates? It's Zion, right? There are no candidates. 
But with that being said, he's a candidate for ACC Player of the Year. He's somewhat in that conversation. He's that good. And he's going to create a lot of problems for Syracuse. And so I'm curious to see how SU handles this. Because Kobe White, their point guard, has been playing well. Nasir Little gives them a little something off the bench. Maybe not quite what they expected, but gives them a little something off the bench. And of course, that head, that the, the hub that everything comes out of for UNC is Luke May. And you know that Luke May is going to perform. You know that Luke May is going to show up. As I pull up here their stats, he's their team's leading scorer. Or he's, uh, sorry, the third leading scorer. But he averages 10 rebounds a game as well. He averages a couple assists. He averages half a block. He does a little bit of everything. And he's going to make, make life difficult on this Syracuse zone. So he is first and foremost at the top of my mind if I mess you. And then the other guy that I turn to right away on this UNC team, somebody that I really, really like, somebody that a couple of years ago I thought would have been awesome if Syracuse could have found a way to to get him here after he decided to transfer from Pittsburgh, and that was Cam Johnson. You look at Cam Johnson, and he would have been a phenomenal fit here, I think. And I know that some of this is is difficult because at the time uh, Pitt said, no, he's not allowed to play for an ACC school. He would have to sit out a year. And, and you know, they, they tried to put restrictions on him. And Cam Johnson just kind of said, whatever, I'm going to go to UNC anyway because that's where I want to go. But think of this. He's a six foot nine forward. He's upping his rebounding game this year. He's averaging about six rebounds a game. And he also scores 17 points a game. He's a shooter. He's a long, lanky player. He's somebody else. If it's not going to be Luke May, he's somebody else who could go sit in the high post and create problems. Now, he might be a little too important to some of the other things that UNC does, much like Luke May might be. So maybe they split time in the middle of that zone. And the two of them create problems together for SU. But he's somebody that I look at along with Luke May and say, you know what? You're looking for why UNC is a top five team? Luke May, Cam Johnson, Colby White. Looking for why they're top five teams year after year? Uh, Luke May was a, what, a former walk-on? And he's turned into an all-ACC caliber player? Cam Johnson, somebody who transferred in mid-career? Going to be an All-ACC player this year? For sure. One of the three All-ACC teams? He's been fantastic. And you wonder why Carolina is so good year after year. Think about what year these guys are. Cam Johnson, fifth-year senior. Luke May, senior. You've got this leadership, and it's, it's amazing to watch. And maybe that's why Syracuse has struggled with UNC in recent years. Because they're always good, they're always talented, they're always young, they're always deep, they're always experienced. They've seemed to manage to stay in the past in an era where that's not possible. They've seemed to manage to hang on to guys for two and three and four years in an era where guys just want to get to the NBA as fast as they possibly can. And that's not to say that Nasir Little isn't going to say, you know what, I had one year, it didn't go so great, I'm not happy, I'm out of here. That's not to say that. Or that's not to say that that won't happen, I should say. 
Nasir Little very well could say, you know what? I did enough here. I'm getting out of here. I didn't want to spend more time at college. I wanted to spend one year. Fine. But they're not a team like Duke or Kentucky that is predicated on that one and done. They're much more in the Virginia mold of things. Carolina, Virginia are much in that same class. And so it's what makes this stretch here so difficult, taking this out and zooming out big picture. You had Duke on Saturday night. You have Carolina tonight. And six days from now, after you play another game, six days from now, you're going to have Virginia in your home building. All three of them playing different styles. All three of them immensely talented. All three of them top five teams in the country for different reasons. And I know that we did this exercise a little bit last week, and Steve and I were batting it back and forth of which team does Syracuse match up best with, which one is the best for a win. And I kind of kept circling back to that Virginia game because I didn't think they were going to beat Duke because they had already done that once this year, and I don't love the matchup with, with UNC, but I really don't feel good about the matchup with Virginia. And ultimately what these are are just opportunities. And I want to get to that in a little bit. They're opportunities to punch up. They're opportunities to better your standing for the NCAA tournament, as we talked about yesterday. And they're just opportunities to go beat a big team. <laughs> to go beat a team that doesn't lose all that much over the course of the season. That might only have four or five losses after the NCAA tournament is played and finished. That's what's on the on the plate in these games. So I'm curious to see how Syracuse comes out tonight because they've struggled a lot with these UNC teams over the years. The Tar Heels have managed to find a way to 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 get around this zone, to beat this defense, so to speak. And they've made it look, relatively speaking, easy. But they don't have Theo Pinson anymore, who was such a weapon in the games last year. So who is it this year? Is it Cam Johnson? Is it Luke May? Is it Nasir Little off the bench? Who is it that really makes the Orange pay? That's the big question for me coming into tonight's game. Why don't we take a timeout? We'll come back. I do want to talk about punching up and and the opportunities here on SU's schedule. 315-437-7644 is the telephone number. We've got a sound check coming up as well. We'll keep rolling until 2 here on Orange Nation. Live from Armory Square. This is Orange Nation with Stephen Fonte and Seth Goldberg. Back on Orange Nation, we're brought to you by the Bill Rapp Superstore at the corner of Thompson and Burnett in Syracuse or online at BillRapp.com. We've got today's business coming up in about 15 minutes or so here on the show. But I mentioned this idea before we took a timeout. And I want to throw the phone number out here because this is a... A wild idea that you guys, I think, would be interested in. 315-437-7644. So if you have thoughts on what I'm going to read you and talk about here, let us know. So this comes from John Wilner of the Mercury News uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area. He is all over things Pac-12. All over it. Uh, And he writes this morning, He writes, imagine a world in which Oklahoma's non-conference lineup consists of Arizona, USC, and Utah. Yes, all in the same season. While Washington's three out-of-league opponents, 
that year are Oklahoma State, TCU, and Iowa State. Meanwhile, Texas plays Oregon, UCLA, and Colorado. The Ducks, they get Texas, Kansas State, and Texas Tech. In this world, the Big, the big 12 and the Pac-12 are bound together by a strategic alliance in which all available non-conference states are filled by teams from the other league. No more FCS uh, cupcakes, no more group of five opponents. It's one power five against another. Think about how insane an idea this might be, but how amazing this would be if the two leagues could pull it off. That last part of my commentary. Think about what this would mean. Seriously, think about what this would mean. We look at the playoff system, and as it stands right now, the ACC's been in every year. The SEC's been in every year. The Big Ten, not getting shut out. The Pac-12, regularly shut out of the of the Final Four. The Big 12, shut out of the Final Four. When you look at the conferences hurt most by conference realignment, the Big 12 lost teams. The Big 12 has 10 teams. How much sense does that make? The Pac-12 has become irrelevant in recent years. Irrelevant. They're a a conference that hasn't gotten a team into the college football playoff now in multiple seasons in a row and is in very grave danger of being a one-bid league this year in the NCAA tournament. That seems impossible. It seems impossible to be a one-bid league as a Power 5 conference. Their TV network is a joke. It's terrible. It's not on anywhere. Not easy to get. The Pac-12 is in trouble, and they might need a life raft. And that life raft might come in the case of the Big 12. Now, this this idea comes from John uh, John Weefald. He was the Kansas State Athletic Director for 23 years, and he was asked by West Virginia President Gordon Gee to uh, come up with some ways to strengthen the conference. And he said he, uh, he told... Uh, John Wilner, he said his first idea was to try and figure out a way to convince Arizona and Arizona State to leave the Pac-12 and join the Big 12, and then threw that out right away. Uh, He wrote up an 11-page document that would be an alliance between, he calls a strategic alliance between the Big 12 and the Pac-12 that would... uh, He says the alliance of 22 universities from the Great Plains to the West Coast would provide the vital content of big-time football games that dovetail nicely with the new developing platforms of information. This idea has been fully fleshed out. The proposal calls for 30 of the Big 12s, for all 30 of the Big 12's non-conference games, right? Three for each of the 10 teams. And for 30 out of the Pac-12's 36 non-conference games three for each of their 12 teams, to be played against one another. These would be played out over the course of the season. It's not all the first three weeks of September. They would be spread out, 10 in each month, 10 in September, 10 in October, 10 games in November across the two conferences. And here's where I think the really interesting part is. The matchups would be spread evenly across the season, Wilner writes, 
with the winners of each conference meeting at the end of the regular season for a championship game that would rotate between the Rose Bowl and AT&T Stadium, Cowboys Stadium. Now that's the intriguing part to me. You're adding another game. This is really becoming one conference. This is really merging the Big, e- the Big 12 and the Pac-12 into one giant super uh, football super conference. Ultimately, that's what it is. And I'm amazed at this idea. I think it's inc- it's an incredibly smart idea, specifically for the Pac-12 that so desperately needs something, someone, to help them as far as football goes. They desperately need something. And the basketball doesn't look so good either. But right now, this is just an idea. Right now, this is just a a thought in the minds of of uh, of John Weefeld and Gordon Gee. Gordon Gee, West Virginia's president, declined to comment. Weefeld would speak largely, you know, more and more uh, with Wilner. And you can read this all online. I'll tweet. I, I tweeted out a link to it earlier at Seth Goldberg seventeen. But when you look at this idea, I don't think it's too far off from what we ultimately end up getting. I've long thought that this whole thing ends, this whole conference realignment college football playoff thing ends with four 16-team conferences. That would be 64 teams. Uh, Right now you've got 65 with the five major conferences plus Notre Dame. So it ends up as a 64-team, four-team conference four-conference system. How do you make that work? Okay, maybe you move Texas and Oklahoma along with Oklahoma State and one of the other Texas teams, Texas Tech. Tech, Texas, Oklahoma, Oklahoma State. They all move to, let's say, the Pac-12. That makes it 16. You take four of the remaining schools, move them to the, the SEC, that makes that 16. You take two of the remaining, the, the two remaining schools, Iowa State presumably, and one other, and you move them to the Big 12, or the Big, whatever it is now, or the Big 10, I should say, and that becomes a 16-team league, and maybe you fold Notre Dame in and become fully a 60, a a, a, conf, a full 16-team conference, or you would have to add one more to the ACC. Sorry. So you'd have to go find one more team for the ACC, along with Notre Dame, to make you a full 16-team conference. And then you have round-robin play, essentially, in your conference schedule. Seven games against one another. You end up with a division championship. The conference championship game, essentially, becomes quarterfinal games in a four-team playoff. And the only four teams that get to the playoff are the four that won their conference. I don't know that that's a perfect system. I, I... in, in fact, I think it's far from a perfect system because there's no guarantee that the two best teams in the country don't come from the same conference. But with that being said, I've long thought that is the most realistic outcome of conference realignment. I've long thought that you're going to end up with six uh, with four 16-team conferences that are essentially eight eight-team conferences playing on their own, and then you get the winners and the conference champions and a four-team playoff that is nice and clean and nobody's left out. 
And I do think that in a way, this is one step towards that. It would have the Pac-12 and the Big 12 kind of in bed together. It would have them playing together. It would have them making a deal with one another. Now, I don't know how realistic it is. I would love, love to see it. But realistically, do you think Tom Herman or Lincoln Riley or Clay Helton or Chip Kelly or Chris Peterson are going to say, yeah, all of our non-conference games are going to be against pack uh, are going to be against power five opponents. Yes, every single one of them. That works. Perfect. Let's do that. I just I I have a hard time thinking that that would actually happen. I have a hard time believing that this would actually go through for some of those reasons, logistical reasons and otherwise. But I like the idea. And I think that at the very least, we should do some kind of challenge, right? Like the ACC has the ACC Big Ten Challenge in basketball. There's got to be a way to do a similar thing in football. Maybe it's not three non-conference games a year, as was suggested earlier today, between the Pac-12 and Big 12. But maybe it's something else. Maybe it's a game a year. Maybe it's two games a year between conference members. College football needs something, I think, in its non-conference schedule to make it more enticing. Make it more interesting. Sure, you can have your one cupcake game, but I don't need Duke out there playing three cupcakes before they play anybody who's even halfway decent. And then going two and six in conference and making a bowl game. Let's put a little bit more meat on the bone there for the non-conference schedule. Let's make it a little more interesting. (laughs) And while I don't think the Big 12, Pac-12 proposal is necessarily realistic... I think it's just crazy enough that it'll spawn some kind of ideas, whether that is renewed expansion talks, whether that is uh, conference challenges in football, whatever that idea might be, maybe this is just a crazy enough idea to spawn some of those conversations. Why don't we take a time out here? We will uh, come back. We've got today's business on the other side on Orange Nation. 